This episode of New Politics was released on the 11th of November, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, success in China for the Prime Minister, but not everyone agrees. Interest rates are up again. The bombing continues in Gaza and is becoming a turning point in international politics. And why is the Prime Minister becoming more unpopular in the opinion polls? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, in charge of maintenance at Optus. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has completed a visit to China and on every measure we can say that the trip has been a success and the relationship between Australia and China has been stabilised. And there's no question that the Australia-China relationship had been damaged by the reckless actions of the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and former Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, when they made accusations that China had caused the outbreak of COVID-19 and wanted the World Health Organisation to investigate China. And it goes back further a little bit when the Turnbull government banned Huawei from supplying 5G infrastructure in Australia. And there were good reasons for doing that, but that fed into anti-China sentiment that was then stoked by the coalition government at the time. And we've always felt that the Australia-China relationship would be repaired at some point. And the benefits for both countries are just too great for the relationship to be damaged forever. But it was still going to take a great deal of diplomatic work to remove all of those tariffs and sanctions that China imposed on Australian exporters several years ago. And most of those sanctions have now been removed. And the Albanese government might not get the credit for this work by the electorate, but this is a significant development in the relationship with China. China, of course, has human rights issues. But then again, so does Australia. There's always going to be that criticism that we shouldn't be dealing with China, but it's our second biggest importer. Chinese manufacturer provides a lot of stuff to Australia that we couldn't do at a the same type of pricing. And it's also good to be friends with all the superpowers <laughs> or all the all the world powers because you never know when you will need their help and even what for you might need their help. I think it has been a a good bit of diplomacy, given the damage that was done. Morrison and Dutton seem to have the idea that what you say in Australia won't go back to China and try to play both sides of the street, as, as it were. But of course, it doesn't work like that. The embassy in Canberra gets all the daily newspapers, watches all the Australian news, etc. They'd also know the difference between what you might call salesmanship. Oh, we showed the Chinese what to do and, you know, and we got the best deal out of this, which may or may not be true. Most governments understand that the people they're dealing with tend to talk up their achievements and talk down the other side's achievements, even in friendly negotiations. But the Chinese government are very sensitive to that dog whistling and even things like the much-lamented AUKUS deal would have been very closely examined in China and the underlying implications, the 
Anglosphere getting back together would not have been missed. So Australia and China getting the hard diplomatic work back, having sanctions lifted, was really a very good piece of work and will be critical of and have been critical of other elements of uh, foreign policy and will be critical of the Australia-China relationship in the future, no doubt, too. But I think this visit to China confirms just how much damage the coalition government did in so many different areas and chasing a wide range of different ideological pursuits rather than the national interest, which is what governments are meant to do all around the world. And all of their objectives should be in the national interest. And it's hard to see how making those accusations against the Chinese government about causing COVID or for Peter Dutton to say that Australia has to be prepared for war and meddling in the politics of Taiwan. And these were the actions that resulted in China placing sanctions and trade barriers on Australian producers. It's hard to see how this was in Australia's national interest, and it clearly wasn't. And those sanctions cost the Australian export market around $20 billion per year. And some of this would have been sorted out by entering other markets around the world, but it was the stupid actions by the Morrison government, and exporters had to pay the price for that. And this current situation, it's not a case where China has become benevolent all of a sudden and wants to do the Labor government a favour. China does have a few economic problems. It's got slow growth at the moment, very high youth unemployment. It's got a very unstable property market in quite a few key cities. And patching up the trade relationship with Australia is good for both countries. And the other factor is, and David, you and I predicted this at the time, and it shows that we do get our predictions right sometimes, but these trade issues were never going to be resolved while the coalition government was in office. And that would need to wait for a change of government. And that's exactly what's happened. And in the field of diplomacy, China does have a very long memory and they wanted to punish the people that humiliated the Chinese government at the time and that was Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. So that part has been inflicted and the punishment is now over and Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong have gone to great lengths to restore that relationship and I think this is the end result. Again, I think the government should get credit for this. It could have gone horribly wrong. Uh, while it, it is an important trade partnership, I think you could argue that Australia needs Chinese trade more than China needs Australian trade. Not that it doesn't need Australian trade, but there are plenty of markets in the world and there are many people wanting to get in good with China. So it's a feather in the cap to the government. Before 1948, Australia did have a fairly strong relationship with China, even if it wasn't as, as acknowledged. After the, the official title, The Glorious Revolution, in 47-48, Australia refused to acknowledge China's existence until the Whitlam government, and Whitlam went over as opposition leader. He was ridiculed, and everybody thought, yep, as we all thought, he's a communist, he's just trying to get in good with the communists. Then it turned out that Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger had been over too and had opened those extremely important diplomatic doors that led to a much different world situation than would have been had they not did that. Suddenly, Billy McMahon was made to be seen as foolish and a bit anachronistic. And it wasn't the only factor and probably not even one of the main factors, but it was a factor in Whitlam winning government in 1972 rather than McMahon winning. And you mentioned some of this before, David, about the human rights issues in China that we do have to take into account. There's Tibet, there's the treatment of Uyghur people, there's Hong Kong, but Australia probably can't really talk about this too much, especially when it had a chance to show its human rights credentials on the Voice to Parliament referendum, but failed that 
pretty badly. So there's probably not going to be too much talk or discussion about human rights. But that relationship with China does seem to fall along political lines. There is that special relationship between the Labor Party and China. As you mentioned, Gough Whitlam's first visit in 1972, Hawke, Keating and Rudd and Labor in government tends to manage the relationship with China far better than the Liberal Party, which still seems to be afflicted with Menzies and the yellow peril rhetoric. And that's probably why the Liberal Party has been so hostile to China over the recent years and has got no qualms about running a racist commentary or attacking Albanese when it comes to the China relationship. And they're still running with that Airbus elbow narrative, even though Albanese has actually travelled overseas less than both Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison did within their first 18 months. And we never heard anyone talking about Airbus Abbott or Mobile Morrison at the time. So all this Airbus elbow is childish rhetoric and student politics behaviour to show that the Liberal Party has really got nothing else to offer. And they're rubbishing Albanese for not solving these problems quickly enough or that there's still a few remaining products like lobster or wine, even though the wine tariff has more or less been cleared up. And the big thing that the Liberal Party is forgetting about is that they were the ones who caused all the problems when they were in government. It was Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. And it's a bit like arsonists turning up to a fire that they've started and harassing the fire engines for not putting out the fire quickly enough. And as far as I'm concerned, it's all really pretty poor politics. It's a mad brand of politics, and we can't really expect anything different from the current Liberal Party, but it's just a very frustrating brand of politics to watch from the sidelines. If there was an argument for it in 1956, say, which there probably wasn't, but let's just for a second say that there was, that argument has well and truly been resolved since at least Tiananmen Square. Now, Tiananmen Square was a terrible, terrible thing, but it did bring changes in to China, which brought it into line a bit more with the rest of the world's values, very quietly, of course. And as a result, the whole yellow peril thing and the whole let's get back to white Australia thing too is the wrong way of looking at these questions. Of course, John Howard found to his peril that the Chinese community is engaged, is passionate, is interested in domestic politics and will make you pay if you uh, don't show them the due respect that they have earned over nearly, uh, what, 180 years of constant immigration to Australia. Bob Hawke protected Chinese students who were here who were under threat of being deported back to China, yet still remained on good terms with China for most of his tenure. So you can be critical anyway. You can work in your own national interest and still be friends which is what we've been saying about a whole range of things, of particularly the last government, but also this one. And then there's the behaviour of the mainstream media, and a few of our audience members are saying that we complain a little bit too much about the media, but David, there's just so much material to work with there, so we're just going to keep going on with this. And there seems to be a collective amnesia within the media, and there's only been a few reports out there that have suggested that most of this work is being done with the China-Australia relationship to undo the damage caused by Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton when they were in government. And for the rest of the media, it's almost like these problems just appeared out of thin air and some of the media framing has been made to appear that it was actually Albanese who's caused all the problems. And of course, it's up to him to then solve the problems. And 
The media narratives about Albanese's trip to China were framed from the coalition perspective and the ABC reporting that the coalition has set a very high bar for the government with their expectations on this China visit and I don't really care what the coalition thinks. They're not the government. I'll care about what they think when they return to government and not a moment before. And Seven West Media and the ABC seem to coordinate their media frame up and both of their journalists were asking Anthony Albanese whether he trusts the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Are you convinced that you can trust President Xi? Uh, I'm convinced that we're building a relationship that's constructive, uh, one where we're able to talk with each other directly. And in the discussions that I have had with him, uh, the formal discussion, uh, but the other discussions as well, uh, they have been positive and respectful. Just further to Mark's question, trust. Do you trust him? Well, I have, uh, we have different political systems, but the engagement that I've had uh, with, uh, with China, with President Xi, have been positive. Uh, they have been constructive. Uh, he has never said anything to me that has not been uh, done. And, and that's a, a positive way that you have to start off dealing with people. And it was a stupid question to ask when you're being hosted in another country. And because Albanese didn't give them a yes-no answer, the media framing then became Albanese falls short of trusting Xi Jinping or Albanese doesn't confirm that he trusts Xi Jinping. And this became the narrative at the ABC, News Corporation, Seven West Media and Nine Media. And it's just terrible conflict-based, clickbait journalism of the worst kind. And fair enough, the media should ask these sorts of questions. There's absolutely no problem about that. But if journalists are not getting the answers that they're looking for, well, they shouldn't be putting the words in the mouth of a political leader. And if the media really wanted conflict-based journalism, well, why don't they direct their microphones towards Peter Dutton and ask him about how he damaged the Australia-China relationship and asking him what he's going to do to make sure that that never happens again. Go and ask him why he thought that preparing for war with China was a good thing to say back then or ask him why he accused China of deliberately creating the coronavirus. Now, the media could totally destroy Peter Dutton, and I'm not suggesting that they do this by following a political agenda or anything like that, but just by following the basic tenets of journalism. But they're not going to do that. It's just a lot easier for them to produce negative headlines for the Prime Minister over what is essentially a good news story for Australian producers and the Australian economy. Tony Abbott said that the ABC should basically support the team and not ask hard questions, particularly hard diplomatic questions, which seemed to me to be asking the media to just be propaganda pieces. There is a sense, though, that you need to be sensitive when you're in another country to ask point blank, do you trust President G? What was Anthony Albanese going to say? He's either going to say, yes, of course I do, or he's going to say no. And in fact, he went through 
as to why she is more trustworthy than not. And of course, no government is completely trustworthy. <laughs> oh, sure. I think he said yes without actually saying yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as far as I'm aware, she is a relatively trustworthy, given all the caveats for any politician. And so any deal made won't be reneged upon. Any contract signed will be honoured, which we can't say for other prime ministers where contracts weren't on it, and where another world leader, President Macron, was asked, do you think Scott Morrison is a liar? And he replied very famously, I don't think, I know. Whether they were looking for a line like that for Anthony Albanese, they were never going to get it. And yeah, the damage done by the particularly the Morrison government, but also the Abbott government, has been immense. And that it's starting to be fixed now, again, shows probably the level of work that has needed to be done in, in a relatively short time. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. Interest rates have gone up again, and it's the 13th consecutive interest rate rise since May 2022, and this coincides with nearly all of the time the Labor government has been in office, and of course there is an economic dimension to interest rates, and this will cause more financial issues for people with mortgages and loans, and there seems to be a bigger relationship between politics and interest rates in Australia than it is in most other countries, but this is an issue that will need to be managed economically by the Labor government, but also politically as well. And if they can't do this, all of this is going to spiral out of control. Again, it's another disastrous operation by the last Liberal Party. And before the right-wing trolls come in and say, oh, you blame everything on the Liberal Party, there's a lot to blame on them. But Having Philip Lowe as chairman of the Reserve Bank board was disastrous. Now, he's gone, but we're still feeling the, the fallout from his disastrous tenure. We've got the same board anyway, and their only strategy is to raise the lower interest rates, which is proving to be a very poor strategy, particularly as it tends to hit the poor. Now, they might like that. We've got these massive tax cuts that we can't afford coming in. If I was Jim Chalmers, I'd certainly be looking at ameliorating those in some kind of way, preferably by scrapping them altogether. But if not by scrapping them altogether, by offsetting some other losses or by cutting the rate that is being taxed significantly or delaying them another two years, putting them after the next election. It's a difficult thing. The Reserve Bank is independent of the government. It should be independent of the government. It may not have been independent of the government in its last iteration because a lot of its decisions seem to favour the last government and then seem to not favour the current one. But watching it from the outside, I may be being a bit too harsh on them. But the Reserve Bank has to, I think, start justifying its existence, at least the board. And I think you're absolutely right. The government has to start 
looking at this thing not just as an economic issue but a political one and how do you sell it to the Australian people? How do you help those Australians? I heard that 17% of uh, mortgages are behind. Now, I will be fair, the banks really don't want to lose that number of mortgages because if they cash them in early, that's it. Whereas if they can keep them going, they'll make more money. So I do think the bank is prepared to work with its customers and take a small hit in the short term for a bigger profit in the long term, an extra couple of years on the mortgage, which is an extra two years of compounded interest, which on the size of some of these mortgages is quite significant. And how the Labor government manages this politically, I think, will define the next election. Of course, there's a whole lot of other issues that come into effect as well. But the official cash rate in May 2022 was 0.35%, and today it's 4.35%. And interest rates, in my opinion, are neither high or low. They just need to be appropriate for whatever's happening in the economy. And the Reserve Bank has decided that it's more important to contain inflation, which is coming down, but it's still a little bit too high. But that's still cold comfort for the people who have got highly geared mortgages. And these small changes to the interest rate cause havoc for household budgets. And if only they didn't listen to Philip Lowe when he said that interest rates wouldn't rise until 2024. And governments need believable reasons for high interest rates as well. And for a while, inflation and higher interest rates were being blamed on the war in Ukraine. And That was part of the picture, but not the full picture. But for the electorate, they could make that correlation between the war in Ukraine and inflation. But the war in Ukraine isn't in the spotlight like it used to be. And in any case, economies all around the world do adjust and stabilise if there are prolonged conflicts in any part of the world. And that's the job of the Treasurer to try and manage these difficult issues politically. And of course, it has to be managed economically as well. And you can't just airbrush difficult economic circumstances. You can't keep saying that the economy is going really well when the electorate is experiencing something completely different. And I think Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison found out about that the hard way when they were booted out of office last year. And This is what the Treasurer needs to do, manage the economics and the politics of the overall economy. And Jim Chalmers has to do this quite forcefully. And if he fails in either of these areas, the government will suffer at the next federal election. It looks like it's already starting to suffer. Opinion polls are suggesting minority government for them, which may not be a bad thing, but that is the loss of perhaps some good members. It means that the government's agenda, that they've really squandered a little bit. I can't say it's a government of no achievement. It's a government of of some achievement and some substantial achievement. But they could have gone a little bit harder, particularly as the polls are now low. Now, I know that the hope is that they will, will be able to turn the polls around a bit by the time of the election. And that's extremely possible. But while people are in a poorer economic situation, and we can point to whose fault it is, and it's not really the current government's, but it's the current government who will get the blame for it and who will be punished at the ballot box. And the pattern is the Liberal Party ruins the economy and the Labor Party fixes it. Mostly, it's time for them to start thinking about the next election. And if they want to go back into a majority government, and there's not a lot of fat either. They've got to maintain an even gain, which is very, very hard for a second government to do. They have to start thinking about what the Australian people want. And I would argue that the first thing they want is financial security. 
And whatever the case is, the media still runs to the opposition first for their assessment of the interest rates rise and the effects on the economy. Why speak to the government when we can speak to the opposition? Let's not speak to Treasurer Jim Chalmers and we can't speak to Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor because he's overseas on some conservative talk fest. So if we can't do all of that, let's go to Senator Jane Hume. They're simply trying to blame somebody else for rising inflation once again. They've blamed Vladimir Putin first and foremost. Then they've blamed the Middle East. They've blamed Israel. They've bl- and now they're blaming the states. Jim Chalmers can't take responsibility for this, and yet so much of the inflation uh, balloon is in, his, is in his control. And that's not actually what the Labor government has said, but this is what happens if you speak before you've heard what the Treasurer has got to say about it, and this is what Jim Chalmers has actually said. Uh, this will make life harder for people who are already doing it tough. Uh, Inflation has moderated in our economy since those peaks that we saw last year and our economy has slowed, but inflation is still a feature of our economy uh, and inflation has been persistent in recent months as the Reserve Bank has identified. Now the primary driver of inflation in the most recent data was petrol, but there are other inflationary pressures in our economy as well, and the Reserve Bank is responding to that. Uh, So this is a difficult day for people with a mortgage. Uh, We do understand that Australians are already under substantial pressure in their household budgets, and this will tighten the screws further. Uh, That's why the highest priority of the Albanese Labor government is rolling out this cost of living relief, which the ABS says is working, but also this responsible economic management, which the Reserve Bank Governor, the IMF and others have acknowledged as well. The government is doing its bit to address the inflationary pressures in our economy. Uh, The Independent Reserve Bank has taken this decision today uh, in the interest of this fight against inflation. Uh, And what we are doing as a government and what the Reserve Bank is doing as an independent board is all about trying to make sure that we can get on top of this inflation challenge in our economy, which is hurting our people and our economy more broadly. So we've got the standard political approach where the Treasurer and someone from the opposition are competing to try and set the agenda on the economy. And ultimately, it is about who presents the most articulate narrative and the most believable narrative forward, but even still... Whatever the narrative is, it has to be believed by the electorate. And politics does work both ways. The coalition believes that it's on a winner by making up their stories and totally forgetting about how poor they were in government for nine years. And that might work for a certain period of time. And it certainly worked in the Voice to Parliament referendum, but it cannot work forever. But it is up to the Labor government to keep reminding the electorate about how terrible the coalition government was how they mismanage the economy, and they just have to keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and keep going, even after the electorate gets sick of that message. And that's what the Liberal Party did with Beasley's $10 billion black hole all the way back in 1996 and kept on repeating that message for almost a decade. And $10 billion compared to $1,000 billion debt left behind by a coalition is a little bit of a joke, but that's what the Labor government has to keep doing. And it's standard politics. They just have to keep reminding the electorate who caused the problems in the first place, just like what happened with the relationship with China. And it is up to the government of the day to resolve these problems. That's what their job is. But they have to remind the electorate that they didn't cause these problems. 
And I suspect, and Kevin Rudd tried this too, and to a lesser extent, Julia Gillard, they're trying to raise the standard of debate in Parliament. Thing is, if you have monkeys on the other side, there's no point in trying to not talk to them like monkeys. The thing they most hate is being slapped down in debate. And instead of complex arguments that appeal to us, call them out and defeat them on their own terms. Of course, Mark Twain said, never argue with a fool. They'll just drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. (laughs) But I think calling them out, getting them to explain. Oh, they'll get Sky News and the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun rushing into their defence. But as we've pointed out, nobody's watching or reading any of that in any case. They're not going to win an argument. They just gain the already converted, which shouldn't matter to Labor. You're trying to win those who are wavering. And yeah, they should just go for it and let them know how silly they are. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. The Gaza bombings by the Israeli military are continuing and this is causing more outrage around the world. The number of Palestinians killed has gone well over 10,000 and there's more targeting of civilians and key infrastructure. The Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has said that Gaza has become a graveyard for children and it's hard to disagree with this. Well over 4,000 children have been killed, but all of this cannot go for too much longer. There's more international pressure being placed on the Israel government. It's a humanitarian crisis that has almost reached the point of no return and there needs to be a resolution to this very urgently. Something's got to happen. Again, it's a corrupt government looking at serious charges, trying to delay these charges by starting a war. Had Israel gone after obvious Hamas targets, it would be very hard to argue against that. The whole Israel has a right to defend itself argument certainly carries a bit of weight. But Gaza is not Hamas. The Palestinian people are not Hamas necessarily. And certainly the thousands of children who have died are not Hamas. Hamas is a very dangerous organisation, a ruthless organisation who are prepared to do horrible things to further their cause. But it seems the Israeli government or the Netanyahu government isn't much different. I think the tide is turning. I'm starting to notice more news stories that are less favourable to the Israeli position as it stands at the moment. I'm starting to see more mainstream media look at the everyday Palestinian. Things are starting to turn. The Australian Greens, of course, walked out of the Senate this week. That was surprisingly effective way of winning the argument. It shows that the Greens do care about human lives. It shows that the Greens 
do have principles, at least to their supporters. And it might be the shot in the arm that the Greens needed after a disastrous few months of a mixture of bad luck, poor management and inexperience. And yeah, the LNP is pro-Israel and don't really want to annoy the Israeli government. ALP is torn. There are some very anti-Israel members who want to see the Israeli state dismantled. There are some pro-Israeli members who have worked very closely with the Israeli state, even if they don't like the Netanyahu government. So Labor's in a difficult position as it often finds itself. I know, as you mentioned, David, the Australian Greens did lead a walk out from the chambers. And here's Senator Maureen Farouki speaking during the week. The coalition is morally bankrupt when it comes to Palestine. And Labour has shown itself to be heartless, gutless cowards. You are watching the massacre of thousands of Palestinians by Israel and you are not condemning Israel. You refuse to call for an immediate ceasefire. Well, we are not going to sit here and watch you pat yourselves on the back for doing nothing. Weasel words are not going to stop war crimes. Today, we bring the people's protest into parliament. Free, free Palestine. Uh, thank you, Senator Fariki. And last week, we did ask the question about who speaks for the Palestinians. And as you mentioned, the Liberal Party definitely doesn't. Uh, the Labor Party generally does not. And, you know, it still talks about Israel does have the right to defend itself, but it's been saying it more through gritted teeth in recent days. So it seems that international action is on the agenda and there is a change in the mindset of the international community and I think it has reached a point where the international community does have to act. The Israel military cannot continue with its unbridled attacks on civilians without suffering any consequences from the international community. A group of seven meetings being convened in Japan to discuss the war in Gaza. The British government is holding an emergency committee meeting as well and Russia is calling for an intervention as well, so there's a nice bit of irony going on there. But it has reached a point where people all around the world are getting disgusted with the actions of the Israel military and the Israel government, and that includes many Israeli people within Israel. And there have been suggestions in the media that Hamas is playing a brilliant PR campaign with all the death and destruction. And I find these suggestions quite offensive, actually. 10,000 civilians killed, well, that's not public relations and PR, that's 10,000 civilians killed. That's 4,000 children killed. And that's all the houses, the shops, the schools, the universities that have been destroyed. That's not PR. That's what's actually happened. And the more the people see this, I don't think it's so much that they're disgusted. They're actually quite disturbed by what's going on in Gaza. The world has changed. And it's a complex issue. And um, I was very pleased and humbled to receive an email from a, one of our listeners who appreciated that we're doing our best on this stuff. And if there was a simple solution that people were prepared to go through, it would have happened by now. Certainly, I think part of the solution is to stop bombing civilian targets, to not attack civilians, to let people's families remain intact. And that's really on both sides. But again, if it was that simple, it probably would have happened by now. Well, I think the solutions are probably pretty easy, but they're very difficult to implement politically. And that, I think that's what the issue is. But there's always help on the way. And during the week, we saw the spectacle of Scott Morrison and former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visiting Israel, and they wanted to show their solidarity with the government of Israel. And if that's what they want to do, that's their business. But 
I think real courage would have been to actually go into Gaza and hold their media conferences there or maybe speak to the Palestinian people there and listen to their perspectives. And Morrison is a former Prime Minister and Boris Johnson is a former British Prime Minister but no longer in Parliament. But Malcolm Turnbull, yet another former Prime Minister, he called it out and asked, well, what's the point of going there and rejected the calls from former MP Dave Sharma for Anthony Albanese to also go and visit Israel? But I mean, seriously, Albanese, Albanese is uh, is you know going on what what is it a sympathy visit, a solidarity visit to Israel? What's Australia going to do other than you know provide sympathy and solidarity? I mean, it just it would just be a it really no Albanese's got to keep his eye on the ball, which is being Prime Minister of Australia and advancing the interests of the you know the Australian people that are, that have put him into office. That would be my advice to him. Leave the showboating for ScoMo and Boris, I think. I'm sure it's appreciated, but you've got to remember they're both two guys that are out of office. They've got plenty of time. And of course, there is that history between Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison, but it's hard to disagree there. And I know that we had a long list of political leaders travelling to Ukraine, and it was almost like a tour of duty for a while. But for the time being, it's probably best for political leaders to stay away and just let the diplomats do all of the work that they need to do. Malcolm Turnbull, of course, had a very close relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu while he was Prime Minister, so he may be compromised a bit there, but he was right in that, what can the Australian Prime Minister do? I'm sure both sides were shaking in their boots when Scott Morrison turned up as a backbencher. They're probably thinking, how many ministries has he appointed himself to, both head of Hamas and head of Israeli intelligence? It looked ridiculous. And he doesn't go to Gaza, which Malcolm Turnbull said would have been the brave thing. He goes to Israel, hundreds of miles away from the action. Boris Johnson has even less authority, I guess is the word. Scott Morrison has none as a member of the Australian Parliament. There's probably a little bit there, but he can't make any decisions. He can't make any deals. He can't do anything. And the other thing too, Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister who decided to not acknowledge Tel Aviv as the capital of Israel, but West Jerusalem, which very few other countries did. And Israel did not move its administrative offices from Tel Aviv to West Jerusalem. So that's how much that was. It was a bizarre and ridiculous situation to have these two nobodies turn up. And of course, what I think it is about is them trying to get back to the leadership of their respective parties. Now with Boris, it's a bit harder because he's got to be found a seat he can win, which may not proved to be very feasible at all, unless they put him into the House of Lords and he becomes Prime Minister from the House of Lords, which is not really possible. Morrison is seemingly actively looking to return to the leadership of the Liberal Party. I saw a headline, Andrew Bolt, saying that Scott Morrison should return. He's the only man who can save the Liberal Party at this point. I don't know if he saw the last electoral campaign, <laughs> but if Scott Morrison's your only hope, it's time to abandon that and cave hic dragones etc so yeah i think both men are trying to revive their pretty much dead political careers i don't know it'll work but i'm not going to say that it won't because stranger things have happened namely both men being prime minister in the first place you're listening to new politics you can subscribe to us on apple or google podcasts listen through spotify YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au 
and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. And the latest news poll has the Labor government still ahead at 52% of the two-party preferred vote and the Liberal National Coalition at 48%, and that's narrowed over the past few months, but it's still an election-winning lead for the government. And we did discuss this issue several months ago, but Anthony Albanese has got a high disapproval rating, and at the moment, 42% of people are satisfied with his performance as Prime Minister, and 52% dissatisfied and that's a net approval rate of minus 10 which is not far behind Peter Dutton's net approval rating of minus 13 and it has always been the case that unpopular leaders can still be elected as long as their opponent is even more unpopular but based on these figures Albanese is almost as unpopular as Peter Dutton and these are the sort of figures that political parties start to take notice of. It is in the middle of this parliamentary term and first term leaders tend to have a severe dip this part of the electoral cycle but it also gives a political party an indication that things have to change and change quite quickly yeah i and takes us back to what we were saying earlier they've got to get control of the economic narrative and be seen to have taken control of the economy and i think that's the major thing and even though they inherited one of the poorest economies in Australian history. You can only blame the opposition for so long before people stop listening. Now, I I would argue that it could take most of the term to fix the economy, but Australians who are in mortgage stress, Australians who are struggling to find work, Australians who are not able to afford groceries and uh, utilities don't care about that. They want the problems fixed last week so that they can pay off their bills and go back to a, a relatively comfortable, frugally comfortable life. And Australians look at the massive profits that Woolworths and Coles make and wonder why that they're allowed to make this stuff and yet prices haven't gone down. They look at things like the Optus breakdown. I don't know how much money was lost yesterday with Optus. I know a lot of businesses and companies and people were affected. They look at that And even though it's got nothing really to do with the government, the Minister for Communications will have to weigh into this at some point and talk about it. I don't think the Liberal Party can win the next election. I'm not even sure they'll get any seats. They might get a few outer Melbourne and outer Sydney seats, but I'm not even sure they will. It's going to depend on the competence, I guess, of the Labor campaign. But Labor doesn't want to be put into a position where they have to work harder for less results, which is what looks like it's going to happen. If the Teals start running in safe Labor seats, and I know the Teals aren't a party, but if we start to get strong independence in safe Labor seats, we may find that we're in minority government. I've said before, I don't think this is a bad thing, but I wouldn't want to be the Prime Minister or the the Cabinet who put Australia into permanent minority government. And the Prime Minister's disapproval rating started going up in July. And that was the same time that the support for the Voice of Parliament started to drop. So there might be a link there. And Anthony Albanese did burn some political capital on the Voice of Parliament and Mm. didn't get much of a return on that. But there's other factors going on as well. And it's never just the one issue that affects the perceptions of a Prime Minister. Pretty much every single issue contributes to that. You mentioned Optus before. Even though that's got nothing to do with the government, that's an issue that does contribute to 
these perceptions. And there have been 12 interest rate rises since Labor won office in May 2022. And there have been a lot of cost of living issues since that time, housing affordability issues as well. So these issues are starting to bank up. And Albanese isn't a polarising figure like Tony Abbott or Scott Morrison were when they were Prime Minister, and you don't necessarily need to be a polarising or divisive figure to have a high disapproval rating, but I'm starting to see some similarities between Malcolm Turnbull and Anthony Albanese, not in characters or anything like that, but just their political experience. Back in 2015, Malcolm Turnbull had the political world on a platter. He had that massive majority when he challenged Tony Abbott. It was actually a relief when Tony Abbott was removed and so many people had so many expectations of Malcolm Turnbull and then nothing. He just meandered for a little while. He almost lost the 2016 election, lost a lot of his political authority and he was hamstrung after that. He kept on meandering until he was challenged by Scott Morrison in 2017. And there are similarities with Anthony Albanese. There was quite a big relief when Scott Morrison was removed from office and a great deal of optimism for a new direction of government. And I don't think Anthony Albanese has really been meandering. The new Labor government has achieved quite a lot since it came into office, but it might be a similar situation to Malcolm Turnbull. You know, people didn't really know what to expect from Malcolm Turnbull, but whatever they got wasn't what they expected, if that makes sense, and they just wanted a lot, lot more. And it might be a similar situation here as well. The electorate wants to see more courage. They might not be able to articulate that, but they do want to see something different. And it could be that. It could be all the negative portrayals of Anthony Albanese by the media and by the Liberal Party that are starting to bite. It might be a combination of all of these different things. And I don't think it's a terminal situation at the moment. And the good thing for the Prime Minister is that it's coming up towards the end of the year. It's time for a reset. He might even be thinking of a cabinet reshuffle. There might be a lot of different things that he's thinking about. But having that time for a reset at this time is probably the biggest advantage that Anthony Albanese has got at the moment. There's a couple of ministers who haven't performed as well as other ministers, I think. And to shuffle them aside or even back to the backbench for a while might help things. And I won't go any further there. We've discussed some of these ministers. I think the other difference between Malcolm Turnbull, I'm just going to footnote here that, of course, Paul Keating compared him to the bunger on Firecracker Night. There's a bit of fizz and pop and then nothing. And basically, he gained the nickname Fizzer, whether rightly or wrongly. It was one of those things that stuck. The other thing, too, is that he had a pretty feral party who many of whom were putting it out that he was a communist, that he was some kind of plant, that he wasn't a real liberal, that refused him any concessions on any policy he wanted to put in, that destabilised him. Anthony Albanese hasn't had that, which is a good thing, helps for stable government, helps for some of the achievements that they've managed to get through. But it also makes it harder to justify the lack of or the seeming lack of action. I know that there'll be a lot of Labor Party supporters listening who'll say, you can't undo a decade's worth of damage in one term. And that's absolutely correct. Uh, I'm talking about here public perception rather than what a government can and cannot do were they not beholden to the public. Probably a more rational electorate might say, yep, this is going to take three terms. 
we are going to not vote the other side in at all because they are completely useless and incompetent and they need to refresh and bring in new and better people. And we might have sympathetic minority governments instead while Labor sorts itself out. But the electorate isn't quite as rational as we'd like to think it to be. And I think the government has to start thinking of more forthright and aggressive messaging to ensure that there is good governance. And not only that there's good governance, but governance that is seen to be good. Because I think I say this every week, it's all about perception. It's not necessarily what they achieve, it's what they're seen to achieve. They can be two completely different things. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.